Welcome to the Sex Cafe podcast. Contraception, also known as family planning, are a series of methods that are used to better time potential pregnancy. Today with us, we have an interesting group of participants who are going to share their lived experiences with the Sex Cafe podcast. Let's get started with the interview I did with Dr. Annalisa Sega from UCF College of Medicine. As an icebreaker, can you tell our listeners what beverages are we having right now? I am having raspberry tea with honey. That's wonderful. Also, we have had questions about soy-based foods as a source of external estrogen. What do we know about soy as a source of estrogen? No, so I actually have read a little bit about this and... It's interesting that you brought that up because I have I have read a little bit about it. So my take from what I've been seeing is that humans, the amount of food that we as humans consume should not have an effect on your hormone levels unless that was, say, the only thing you were eating exclusively for months and months and months. You know, in my opinion from research that I've looked at, Just having, you know, like soy milk instead of regular milk or soybeans or things even with soy additive inside of them should not affect estrogen levels to an extent that it would end up affecting your cycle because we're talking about units that are so specific and that your body does such a good job trying to control. Even if you were to consume exogenous estrogen, your body would try to fix that which is why when you take oral contraceptives or you know a hormone shot or you have an IUD that is hormone based it's not effective right away because you have to go through the process of your body changing its hormone signals before you stop ovulation to then have a contraceptive effect the only thing that's not true for is IUDs because not only could they be hormonal they're actually a physical barrier so those are effective right away but it's not because of the hormone. It's because there's something impeding implantation in the uterus. Makes complete sense. So we thank our listeners as well for those questions that we have been receiving since we launched the podcast. And we encourage everyone actually to submit their questions as well. We will be having more conversations on uh, sexual and reproductive health. We have mentioned that we want to understand menstrual, menstrual cycle First and foremost, as a normal periodic event that is going to happen among uh, bodies that menstruate, but also an important tip that or an important guideline for people who are looking to conceive and to get pregnant. What guidance can we provide to those who are in that, to those listeners who are in that particular stage? Sure. So like we discussed a little bit earlier about what we call the quote-unquote normal menstrual cycle and bodies that go through menstruation, that's kind of the ideal if you're looking to achieve a successful pregnancy because not only does a successful pregnancy depend on a happy and healthy uterus, that nice big muscle that causes all that pain, it also depends on really specific hormone signaling. So when you learn about the deep physiology of it, which is a little bit too in-depth for this discussion because it would just take a very long time, it's actually quite amazing the a number of pregnancies people are able to achieve every year. That was one of the things that drew me to obstetric and gynecology because reproduction is just so fascinating. All of the things that have to go right for every single one of us to be here is crazy. So if you are one of those listeners who are trying to conceive a pregnancy and having a little bit of trouble, it's unfortunately a lot more common than you would think. And there's a lot of little things that could be causing that. So it's not necessarily you. It's not, you're not doing anything wrong. Um, There are so many different hormones and so many different blood vessels that have to be adequate to support a fetus. The most important that we can sense as you know, outward humans of our own menstrual cycles is the cycle length. So specifically that that total cycle length is around 28 days and your bleeding length is under 10 days. You'll read some books that say it should be a little bit shorter than 10 days, but typically that is usually fine. And that is so important because that 14 day mark 
when you ovulate is what causes the ability to have a pregnancy. So that egg coming out and meeting with sperm in the fallopian tube is then what eventually leads to implantation in the uterus and becomes a fetus. If you have an abnormal cycle length, say your total cycle length is 38 days, that is indicative that you're not ovulating because that ovulation should always happen 14 days back from the start of your period. So the longer a cycle goes, the more indicative it is to us as outsiders without necessarily doing a bunch of testing that, ooh, maybe there wasn't an egg release this cycle. And if there's no egg, then there can be no pregnancy. What else our listeners should be aware of menstrual cycle regarding, for example, natural conception through intercourse, through sex? What are the do's and don'ts about that specific period when they're trying to conceive? So you can get very specific into family planning of, you know, planning when the best time to have intercourse is if you are having trouble conceiving. There are kits that you can monitor basal body temperature with. There are kits that you can monitor ovulation through your urine. It detects a hormone, uh, LH, that is released at the spike of ovulation. You know, so you can attempt those extra things, but in a natural family planning type of way, typically if you are tracking your periods, say through an app, and you know that your cycle is always 32 days long, you subtract 14 days from that 32, and that day back is when you would be ovulating. So in a lot of people with female reproductive organs, that typically happens around days 14 to 17. If a cycle is 28 days, 14 days back will be day 14. And you know, if a cycle is a little bit longer, it might be day 17 or 18. And the most important thing about that window is to have sexual intercourse or to insert sperm into the vagina to obtain conception, say if you're doing intrauterine insemination, during that time window within 48 hours. Not saying that you can only have sex during that time or that it needs to be at that time. Sperm have different lifespans and they can live up to 72 hours, so if it's a little bit before or if you do multiple times, but, you know, if you're really trying to get down to the nitty gritty of it, 48 hour window right after ovulation is when the best chance for conception. And for those very few bodies that or or for that minority group that actually has the blessing of that middle smart, they can actually have that little cramping and that little and they know kind exactly of ding. When it happens. It's exactly when it happens. Sometimes it can be a little intense. I, I have. <laughs> patients actually that have a little intense cramping with the middle smirch and they sometimes consult is like am I having you know appendicitis am I having something wrong with my and then we track back luckily they have the app and we track back the cycle they have a log of of their cycle and we can actually work with that that outcome right so Annalisa it has been a pleasure to have you here in the podcast Today we are here in a new episode of the Sex Cafe podcast, and this is a very exciting episode. We will be talking about family planning in the 21st century. So we have two guests. One of them is no stranger to uh, the Sex Cafe podcast. Eric, I'll let you introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Eric Suarez. I'm a nurse practitioner. I practice in family practice and in HIV specifically or infectious diseases. I'm at Pineapple Healthcare, which is local here to Central Florida. So that would be pineapplehealthcare.com. We, uh, I, I jokingly tell people that if you know Planned Parenthood, then you know us well. But I'd like to think that maybe we do a little bit better. But anyway, that's us. And with us today, I'll let uh, my other guest introduce himself and know what organization they represent. Hello, uh, my name is William Paulino. I am with PPGA at UCF. That is Planned Parenthood Generation Action at UCF. We are a student organization that advocates for reproductive justice, educates about sexual health, and basically advocates for all the same things that Planned Parenthood advocates for. We just do it on campuses. So are, are you? is your scope of work limited within UCF campus or are you doing outreach within the community as well? 
I do outreach as well personally. We also try to get our members involved with that. I work within Orlando. I was in Tallahassee last month, you know, advocating for reproductive justice as well. So it definitely expands beyond UCF. Wonderful. And that's wonderful work. Kudos to both of you for all the great things that you do for the Central Florida community at large. So can we get started with this cafe conversation by telling our listeners what are we drinking today? I'm drinking a Colombian roast hot coffee with vanilla creamer and a bit of Splenda. Nice. Sweeten it up. How about you, Eric? I have no idea what's in my cup because Dr. Lopez Castillo made it for me. But I do know that the creamer is vanilla caramel with a splash of Splenda. There you go. So we are having actually dark roast coffee. Okay. Um, he told me at the beginning when we were preparing the coffee, so we'll have whatever I was having, right? So I'm having a dark roast uh, with uh, creamer and no sugar, actually. I think I'm sweet enough myself to not, not add sugar to the coffee. Tell me. You just described consent. I consented for you to make my coffee. <laughs> Oh, yes. it always starts with consent. Maybe that's a good place. And there's that analogy with tea as well, right? Yeah. Uh, I love that one. Have you heard about it, Lillian? Yeah. Um, it's an analogy of consent about tea, and a person asks you if you would like some tea, and you can say yes, but then change your mind, and then you can spice it up, and then you can add or remove whatever you want, and, and it's a fluid thing. Uh, one of my favorite sex educators, Aldo Alvernacchio, he's based in Philly. He has a like fantastic tech talk. He actually uses a pizza analogy about consent. And it's fantastic because when you actually have to order a pizza with someone who has different likes, it's like a negotiation process. Like, should we go half and half? Do I like spicy? Do you like... Mm -hmm. So it's a fantastic... And also he says that he hates, he hates the sports analogies because in every sports analogy, there's a winner and a loser. And in a pizza analogy, it's a negotiation where you both get satisfied with the final outcome. So sometimes you have to give, sometimes you have to take, and, and it's like that negotiation communication. And Eric is a good advocate of communication as a tool between couples and throuples and more, right? Yeah, yeah. Polyamory is a very common thing here in Central Florida. I think uh, nationwide, as we uh, expand on sexuality and communication. So before we even get started to talk about family planning methods in the current era, why does family planning matter? Why should a couple decide on the best approach to family planning? I think it's autonomy and the freedom for self-determination. Um, I think the majority of, not I think, we, I know, we know that the majority of like human history, it's kind of been, well, she's pregnant again, here we are. And, and we can definitely see that as we've had more access over time to contraception or options, that we have been able to choose and refine what it is that we want for ourselves in our lives and able to achieve goals, whether it be academically or financially or even socially in the communities at large that we, we live and you know, operate in. Um, so I, that, that's the important part is that we have a choice and that we can exercise that choice and we can be intelligent people about what our choices are. And when you're mentioning that planning process is not only is short for sure we're going to be talking about contraception and contraceptive methods but that planning goes beyond that it's planning for housing is planning for your financial status how are you going to provide education what is your agreement on religion what's your agreement on how to raise your family what model of family you want to follow yeah. so it definitely that's an important an, an important component now when we do planning what important outcomes are we looking for in that planning process is there anything for the in, in anything that will be favorable for the individual and for the family well i hope in the process of planning i think the the number one goal is to you know hopefully find the greatest amount of success as possible as a family and as individuals as well I think family planning sets up both the parents and the children for uh, just the greatest chance of success, both, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, like mental health wise. And when you have the ability to plan for a family, I think most of all, you have time. You have time to look for resources. You have time to do research. You have time to just 
allocate funding to certain things that you're going to need as parents and as a family down the line. It also sets you up for just the greatest chance of success, really, and allows for kind of the greatest outcomes health-wise, whether that's physical, emotional, mental health. It's kind of funny that you mentioned mental health. Actually, for unintended pregnancies, women who experience unintended pregnancies disproportionately do report greater post uh, postpartum depression, uh, struggles, mental struggles with the whole pregnancy and delivery and time thereafter. So one does have, you know, a direct correlation with the other. Well, it's such a stressor, you know, like just all of a sudden, if you're in that position, kind of finding out you're pregnant and that you have to plan for this thing all of a sudden, it's just a bunch of different things come to mind as to where your life your life plans have changed you're you know you suddenly need a lot more money than you probably have at the moment you're thinking of what you're going to tell your family what you're going to tell your friends do we ever have enough money no (laughs) so now imagine being unprepared for that right even when you prepare you don't have enough now being unprepared for for a family right i would like to know any do do you are, are you is either of you aware of any positive outcomes for of babies after a planned pregnancy versus unplanned pregnancy? No, no. I, in fact, the majority of what I looked online was focused on unplanned pregnancies and finding the differential between the planned versus unplanned. I would imagine from what I saw from my research that it was, you know, the the psychological stress, you know, and the stress that happens and postpartum depression is not necessarily there. However, that may not necessarily be true either, right? So we're comparing like positive outcomes. Okay. Well, I mean, I can speak from personal experience if that's okay. I mean, I knew multiple people in high school and even as recent as, you know, these past few years who had unplanned pregnancies and you can kind of see how it really affected their lives and altered their paths. And I mean, I knew a couple of people who had to drop out of school, who like almost missed graduation, who basically had to change their whole life around at such a young age, just because they didn't know what to do and they didn't have the resources to manage that. Versus, I mean, planned pregnancies. I also know people who've had planned pregnancies and just seeing the difference in the outcomes for that, you know, they're much more able, they're better equipped, they have more funding, they're able to, you know, make choices that feel right for them. And I think something you said earlier was um, autonomy. I think that's really important as well, because once you have the ability to just simply make those personal decisions on your own time and to your best ability, it makes a world of difference. Absolutely. Now, how do people start getting that family plan? And again, we are going to focus at some point on specific methods for contraception, but as a plan at large that you discuss with your partner, how, how does that discussion get started? Or when should be a good time to start that discussion? I can tell you that one. So for me, I, would t- I definitely encourage everyone to have that either at or before date number one. I'm very much before the horse leaves the gate kind of communicator and, and, and kind of getting that into control. So I use myself, my, my personal life as an example to teach other people. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong, but you know, it generally gives an, an, an idea. So even as a gay man, where I'm not necessarily worried about unintended pregnancies, unintended, un, yeah, unintended pregnancies. So one of the things I use when it comes to communication with my husband, uh, or that I did use with my husband in the beginning of our relationship on date number one, I asked him, you know, carte blanche, like, hey, how many children are you interested in? His answer at the time was he wanted three kids. And mine, my response is, well, I want one. So from the beginning, you know, if I saw myself having a long term future with this individual, I wanted to see if we matched up, right? Is there a match here? So in the back of my mind, it's like, well, three is a lot. But you know, Maybe I can grow to that number or maybe he can adjust to my number or maybe we can meet in the middle, right? How flexible is either party? But that requires having those talks early on. And that is someone that I was interested in having a long-term relationship with. So obviously, if we're not talking about a long-term relationship, conversations tend to change. Definitely. But still, it would be important to have the conversation on how you're going to prevent. If, if you're not looking in the long term, how you're going to prevent any words of wisdom on how to start that conversation on your end on, on the trainings that you have been doing with Planned Parenthood how how do the youth approach that with long-term or short-term partners with both 
Um, I mean, my policy and kind of Planned Parenthood's policy is just honesty is the best policy and just the number one thing you have to keep in mind. It's best to be honest about your expectations and your desires as far as what you want with family planning so that down the line, like kind of like what you were alluding to, you're not so involved in this relationship with this person and planning on being with them for the rest of your life. And then all of a sudden they're like, no, I don't want kids actually. And you've secretly been wanting a family of five. So you're kind of stuck. I think it's whether it's a long-term thing or a short-term thing. I mean, there's no shame in just saying, Hey, this is what I want. I'm comfortable with doing this, this, and this. I would prefer to be protected in this way and this way. I'm taking these precautions, et cetera, et cetera. What are you doing? How, like, how are you going to meet me there? Like, etc so that you're not especially with a short-term thing if it's just you know prevention you can find yourself in some really uncomfortable circumstances if you don't talk about that right away i love teaching straight couples and straight people in general about the gay model see like gay people from the beginning from the get-go whether it be through an app or through facebook or whatever before they even meet in the real world this is what I'm okay with doing. This is what I'm not okay with doing. This is what I like. This is how I like doing what I like. These are my means of protection, whether it be prep or condoms or whatever means it might be. And that's even before they even meet in person. So I think that, you know, that goes back to communication being that key tool and not being afraid to talk about these things. And the more it's normalized, the less awkward it will feel, right? So yeah. if you... I, I, I can imagine some readers, uh, some listeners cringing about the fact of bringing this up on the very first couple dates, but definitely if it's a deal breaker. Look, if it's a deal breaker, I would rather stay at home with my cinnamon toast crunch watching my Netflix. That's a greater priority than something that's going to be a deal breaker. I think in a way, if people are having sort of hesitations about bringing that up, I would view it as almost a flattering thing. If someone came to me on a first date and was like, hey, look, I'm really interested in being, you, being with you long term. Here's my, you know, what I want in a family. Here's the amount of children I want. Here's how I want to raise my children, et cetera, et cetera. Like, where's your mind at? I take that in a flattering way because it shows me, okay, you know, they're interested in me and interested enough to take it seriously and tell me their expectations in the hopes that, we can meet in the middle and like grow into that one day. And again, it shouldn't be super awkward, but what other means that would take away some of that awkwardness is that it's just a part of a life plan, right? And you have this greater plan, you want academic success, you want to study this or that career, you want to do a master, you want a job in this industry. And all of that definitely will take some conversation because that will need a partner support to achieve those goals and have those exchanges as well. How can you in return support your partner in their life plan and definitely make it a common plan? Right? And oftentimes graduate school is not necessarily where you got your bachelor's. In fact, I don't I don't think I even know of someone who did their master's degree or graduate school in any way where they got their bachelor's degree. So you have to anticipate you're going to be moving or going to God knows maybe another end of the country. I definitely defer to the gay model where it's like everything is set in stone and clear. In fact, even on, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of because I haven't been on any grinder growler scruff apps in a very long time. But there, I mean, even on apps, yeah. Even on the apps, the, the you indicate like what your preferred methods of contraception are, uh, or prevention. It, you know, um, what is your last time that you were tested, and actually it it marks down the actual date you were last tested for STI screens for STIs. So, uh, being most upfront and forward, and, and that almost sounds to what in the past. And when I say the past, I'm talking about 2000 and before. That would have been like TMI, but today it's kind of like normal discussion. I think a way to make it easier is kind of, you know, approaching it from a way that you're ensuring the other person that you're not, you know, you're not judging them or you're not, you know, approaching it with stigma, just saying, hey, I care about you. I care about your health. I also care about my own health and well-being. This is what I'm comfortable with. This is the contraceptive measures I want to use. And if they're, you know, someone who you want to be dealing with, hopefully they would have that same mindset because if it's someone who's immediately off-put at the idea of you know not just contraception but just listening to what you're comfortable with i think that's kind of a red flag um and something you should probably avoid and that is something that has to be negotiated and again probably talking about it will as as william was saying that, that will give the sense of those future plans of a life together and that commitment that you're willing to make 
and it doesn't necessarily as I have mentioned have to be a deal breaker but it have been it has to be a negotiation and communication process now with that said with that kind of introduction how can people better communicate it how how do you have any other ideas on how we can remove that awkwardness of talking about you know contraception from the very beginning eric brought us a list of goodies here as as we are going to go down a list of contraceptives and we're going to leave in our social media some stills of the amazing uh, stills and videos of the amazing things that eric has shared with us and we can start talking about them as we go forth. And feel free to jump in at any minute. Let's go first with no method. Let's go bottom up. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I would not personally recommend this. I know it's kind of becoming more and more popular, especially among younger people. You know, I see a lot of it, people talking about it on like Twitter and such. Yeah, personally though, from a health standpoint, I can't really recommend that, but. Pregnancy, pregnancy can occur from the from any interaction between sex organs, right? That's so true. even in the foreplay, that can happen. So using no, it's very rare, yes. <laughs> but even in foreplay, that can happen. So eh, not in my world. world. <laughs> so just for the record, the chart that we have in front of us, right, one of them actually comes from Co Copper Surgical Inc., which is the manufacturer of the Copper IUD. And just so you guys know, I actually double checked and verified that it is exactly the same one that is on the CDC website. Okay. So the information is accurate and the same. So if people are not planning accordingly, so they don't have any of the other uh, resources that we're going to be talking about. So pulling out will give a chance of getting pregnant about 85 in the, uh, out of every 100 interactions. So if every 100 interactions, about 85 are going to turn into a pregnancy. Not, not very efficient, right? No. And what falls into that, we have the rhythm method, we have the cervical mucus method, there's the temperature method where she measures her temperature every day to detect a two to three degree difference to evaluate if she's developing progesterone and entering ovulation or exiting ovulation or where she is in her cycle. Keeping track of cycle is also another method that I think falls into the... Is that a no method method? No, because you are actively doing something. Yes. yes. We heard in our podcast on menstrual cycle that it also depends on from cycle to cycle. So some people work like clockwork and they read the textbook. Some people didn't read the textbook and they don't work like clockwork. So they're very regular. And they read the textbook once a semester. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it's very difficult to keep track of that ovulation when the cycle is not that regular. So that will also bring another uncertainty factor for people who are keeping track with calendars. So for these methods that we have discussed, so we have talked about, actually, shouldn't we describe them one by one? Let's go with that part of the list. Again, our listeners can join the conversation on the CDC website link that we are going to leave in the comment section. So let's describe the diaphragm. Let's let's talk about the diaphragm. So the diaphragm is um, a silicone rubber material that presses up against the actual cervix itself. It is oftentimes filled with uh, spermicidal foam but spermicidal foam or gel can be used independent of the diaphragm. Basically, it is the goalie blocking the goal. So intercourse happens and then it is you, you wait to try to make sure you collect and remove all as efficiently as possible. And this is the group that is considered a barrier method, right? It gives a physical barrier between the sperm and the egg. So pregnancy um, cannot happen. And again, as we saw, it is typically combined with spermicide, but spermicide can be used by itself, but it's uh, in the lower efficiency, efficacy rate. Okay. We also see male condom. And again, as a reminder to our listeners, we're going to be talking about condoms as a contraceptive, but as a caveat, they have the added bonus that they are also a barrier method against, other sexu uh, against sexually transmitted infections. So as a contraceptive, male condoms, let's describe them. A male condom is basically something that you would, you know, take out of a single-use package, place on top of a 
penis. Uh, roll it down onto the penis. It just is a barrier between the penis and then whatever you are inserting it into. Something I like about male con- So when they show up at my clinic, I'll know okay, yes, exactly yes, yes. what they're doing. Sorry, sorry, like, are you so doing Dr. Lopez's assignment? Language. Sorry. Um, yes, but that is correct. Something I like about male condoms, especially as someone who works like a lot on UCF campus is that they're available almost everywhere. There's a plethora of them. Yeah, but they're very prevalent. So if you need something, some sort of contraceptive and you're like, well, it's last minute, I don't know what to do. If you are on a college campus, you have a health center, you have a PPGA, uh, you can likely go and choose from a variety of options. So I like that about it. They're readily available everywhere. They're not that I, my students have an assignment where they have to actually go and, and do a mystery shopping of contraceptives and report back on pricing and report back on so what- definitely. And they report back, for example, those who just go to a pharmacy and report out of pocket. They are surprised that the some of the brands and some of the condoms that we have right now here at the table that they can get for free actually on campus cost whatever they cost at the pharmacy because they're used to getting them for free. So the ones on the table that we have here today, we have a Magnum, a Trojan, and the One brand. The interesting part about what you're saying is that actually all these here, including the female condom as well, all these here actually are free. I paid nothing for them. Actually, I take it back. The state of Florida paid for them. And that's how we got them through our nonprofit organization. So there's a lot of nonprofit organizations that do a very diligent job about distributing these supplies. Also, we should notice that we have been talking about male and female condoms. In the general terminology, they are now referred to as internal and external condoms. So they're readily accessible, they're readily available, and we encourage it because uh, not necessarily they will focus on exclusively on birth control or on contraception, but they will also no, definitely refer not. to uh, barrier methods to prevent sexually transmitted infections. Again, that's an added bonus of these methods, right? Yeah, I, that's the my my favorite part about when it comes to barrier protective methods is that. It, they're obviously going to protect you with it from the STIs. The one thing that I would always warn and caution people about is that there are STIs that are not, that these barrier methods will not protect against. So uh, transmissions from skin to skin contact, or I'm thinking, I'm thinking about herpes, I'm thinking about, yeah, pubic lysis definitely, although I haven't seen those in a while, thank God. I, what is the other one? Scabies. Scabies is another one, yes. So we also have the withdrawal method, also known as pulling out. So what is the kind of efficacy rate of pulling out? Not very good odds, right? And I think with the problem with the pulling out method is that there are, remember the purpose of reproduction is reproduction, right? That's what, uh, while we're one of the few animals in the animal kingdom that does it for pleasure and recreation, that the reality is, is that it is for reproduction. It has its function. So even in pre-ejaculate, there are sperm cells that can be found in that fluid. So while maybe the male partner does not perceive that he has ejaculated, the reality is is that there could be, I guess, yeah, so, swimmers heading towards that goalie, <laughs> right? So my least favorite, actually, so I see in here in the chart, there's one, the sponge method. The sponge method is actually one of my least favorite because it oftentimes is forgotten. I believe it's called toxic shock syndrome when it's forgotten inside the woman and it's actually stayed there and, it, and it's... Yeah, it's, it's a nourishing environment for infections, right? Exactly. When, when people forget to... Remember. The interesting part is in recent history, that actually became a popular method of contraception in Canada. So it's kind of returned back into favor in Canada. I'm not sure. I don't see that to be true in the United States. And I'm not sure why that might be. Perhaps Seinfeld episode on oh, Elaine's on Elaine's running out of sponges. Oh. Are you familiar with that I, episode? I, I, I have to see there it. was a Seinfeld episode where Elaine, that's the method that she was using. And they were discontinuing it. And eventually Elaine freaked out, found a pharmacy that will carry a whole box. And then she was hoarding that box to herself. Mm-hmm and not sharing it with anyone else who would use that method. I wanted to know also that I think the reason why things like the sponge and also the the diaphragm and the cervical cap have kind of fallen out of favor is I did a presentation last semester about different methods of contraception and a lot of the people in the audience said that, you know, they want something that they can kind of, you know, you know, leave it and forget it. Something that they don't have to, you know, physically put inside of them for 
you know, some, some of them I know require time. Some of them it's like a couple hours or up to four hours even, depending on if you're using spermicide or not, that you have to, you know, kind of plan and, you know, place it in the right position beforehand. So I know some people who I talked to said that uh, they just didn't want to deal with that kind of hassle and they would rather have something not to jump ahead, like, you know, an IUD or an implant that they could not have to think about as much. You know, that's funny because what I hear from women most when it, when I talk to them about contraception is that's what their complaint is in the next category of more effective treatment when it comes to the patch and NuvaRing. They, they find it cumbersome or almost like the word would be annoying to have to take it out at a certain time or forget it or leave it or in the case of the patch where it were to fall off and you don't notice it fell off. Yeah, they, they feel annoyed with having to manage those details. It's funny that you mentioned that because I had a friend a few months ago who I don't know if she still uses it, but she was using the Nuva Ring and she texted me and said, oh my God, I'm so annoyed. I was in the middle of having sex and my Nuva Ring just fell out onto the floor. <laughs> so I think she's looking for other methods. But yeah, that is true. I mean, the patch is unreliable based on, you know, friction or whatever you're doing. Showering. Yeah. I hope people shower. Hopefully. On that note, though, for your friend, I hope that she reinserted the Nuva Ring within 24 hours. She did. She did. Yes. Okay. She did some research um, and I advised sure. her as well. But yeah. She, and I know she was just saying how it was just kind of an annoyance, how I know you have to place them also in a particular way and it can be kind of difficult depending on your anatomy. So for our uh, listeners, we jump into the next category of the patch and the ring. And that category also includes the pill and the shot. So let's describe that Nuva ring that we have been talking about for our listeners. So the Nuva ring is a combination medication. I believe it's estrogen and progesterone. That's one of the issues is that a lot of these medications are primarily estrogen and progesterone, one or the other or both. And each one of them have a value and purpose. So like, for example, estrogen prevents the egg from leaving the ovary, whereas progesterone creates a thick mucus plug over the cervix to, again, block the goalie so pregnancy cannot happen. So they and the combination of thereof oftentimes serves a very valuable purpose and different quantities of each hormone can serve each individual different purpose. I had one person in college that I went to school with that had the Nuva ring as well. And I actually had to walk her out of Target because she started breaking out crying, watching, looking at like the little, there was like a little teddy bear over the Wonder Bread or whatever it was at the time. So that, and that it's attributed to the estrogen, right? If the estrogen is too high, hyper emotional status can happen. Mood swings can happen depending on what hormone combination your contraception has. So this is where that returning back to the communication piece communication with your healthcare provider like hey i broke down crying looking at teddy bears at target or whatever i think i might need to revisit my contraception absolutely how often should the ring be left uh, once inserted and three weeks uh we insert we insert we leave it in for three weeks and then it comes out for one week for convenience purposes i know a lot of women who remove it just they leave it in and they just remove it monthly but it can fall out having said that the other option I see here, and my hope, sorry if I'm jumping ahead, but uh, is the shot, the depo shot. I know women who absolutely love that, but the one thing I, I'm kind of on the fence about the depo shot, right? Because it's it's an, it's an intense progesterone hormone, right? The women who love their depo shot, they're religious. They take it every three months. They're very happy with the treatment. They don't have to worry about pills in between or rings falling out or patches falling off. So it's really effective and great in those ways. Downside, we do have a window, that window to, and I'm forgetting what that window time frame is right now, to re-administer the injection. There are plenty of depo babies as a result of missing that window. The other thing is that if you are planning on having children in the upcoming year, right, this may not be the method for you because you can have a delayed return of fertility with the depo shot. So that's something to take into consideration. It's like, when are you planning on having children? And is how, what is the delayed return of fertility for this particular method or treatment? Also in this category, our options here will re result in about one to six pregnancies in 100 interactions. So we can see that it's a little more efficient than the category that we saw before and that Except for the pill that requires a daily interaction, the other ones require every three weeks or so, a little less 
of that you know constant interaction on a daily basis that also helps people stay more compliant with their family planning methods and probably resorts also to going back to fertility whenever they're ready to to start their family now that moves us up to the top of the most efficient or efficacious uh, methods which are less than one pregnancy out of every 100 interactions and those include the implant and the intrauterine device the iud and then the permanent sterilization surgery both for males and females so we're start talking about the intrauterine device the iud i am a lover 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 of the intrauterine device with one exception so i love the intrauterine device because there are a myriad of options and the longest one can be left inside the body for 10 years the copper iud was originally developed and studied and i believe it came out in 1976 if i remember correctly and it was as in a form of emergency contraception when implanted it can be implanted after a missed uh, a whoopsie uh, i don't know how to call a whoopsie a technical language but i think everyone will understand what i mean by a whoopsie um, up to five days after right a condom break or whatnot and it's 99 percent effective it's even more so effective than the plan b pill so and the best part also i i think is that a copper iud prevents asherman syndrome which the cause is to this day still very alone for those who don't know what asherman syndrome is asherman syndrome is when there's adhesions inside the uterine wall that actually prevent you know an, an egg a fertilized egg from attaching to the wall so and this is the way that the copper iud does that is by continuously sloughing the inner lining of the uterine wall it makes it the, the way i explain it to my students it makes the neighborhood very unwelcoming to a potential pregnancy so it just slides off it doesn't implant yep correct Teflon for the uterus. Amazing. (laughs) I will say from my experience with talking to people at UCF, um, a lot of people are becoming more and more interested with the copper IUD. A lot of it is because hormone free. Yeah. A lot of people have had negative experiences with hormonal birth control, contraceptives. Family history of hormone dependent cancers Mm -hmm. is also an important. Yeah. So a lot of people I talk to are moving towards the copper IUD as an option. And also because as you said, the length of time that it can be effective for is very appealing to a lot of people who aren't really looking to you know, start a family anytime soon. Think about it. If you're going to change it every four or five years, that's the whole bachelor's. Well, no, that's a four-year degree. Well, no, the that's copper one's a decade, but the hormonal ones is five years. Yeah. So that's that's really great. And the thing is, is like I think the most expo- expensive one, if you were to pay out of pocket, I believe it's about 350 dollars. So I'm going to pull out my calculator here. 350 divided by 10 years is $35. Yeah, there you go. Two bucks a month. Two bucks a month. Amazing. Yeah, that's definitely worth it. It's cheaper than one condom a month. Oh, yeah. Well, not true. If you got them. If you get them for free. Yeah. Yeah. If you know where to get them for free, reach out to the community. There's nonprofits for sure. The other one. So this is my problem is that I, I... My recent post on Facebook, I posted on a a video about the safe administration of an intrauterine device, and it reached 2.7 million views and comments. So there was quite a lengthy amount of comments to go through. But one of the things I found that to be really interesting was that there's a lot of negative experiences with IUDs and that why women, because in my mind, I'm a lover of IUDs, well, possibly because I don't have a uterus, but secondly, is because I've never had to experience putting one, having one put into me. And one of the biggest complaints that I saw time and time again is at the time of administration or implementation, they used forceps, right, to pull apart basically the cervix and to implement the IUD. Unfortunately, when they did this, there's a lot of bleeding that can be involved and that is common. A lot of that bleeding leads to cramping that comes like in the hours or two even days afterwards. So I, I, I see kind of that I was kind of shocked to see that there was a lot of pushback from the female population responding to my video about the use of an IUD. I thought we don't have to open a hole in your body. We don't have to give you hormones or pills. Like I was like, Yahtzee, we won. We figured this out. And I was shocked to see that it was actually the women that were telling me, no, I'm not interested in that. 
So how can women discuss with their practitioner about reducing bleeding, reducing pain at the time of insertion, and reducing cramping, which are common side effects of right after implantation? So this is one of the things I, I talk about with my patients because I try to ease them into the idea of IUD. There are there are different ways of improving this. And the way to improve this is you can ask them what their administration meant. Uh, ask the healthcare provider, do you use forceps? What is your experience with forceps in the administration? Um, in my personal one-on-one -on -one conversations with OBGYNs, a lot of them blatantly tell me, we don't use the forceps because we know of what it's soft tissue and it's gonna tear. So we just use our sounding rod to do the administration. The sounding rod is also very important because that assures that we're in the uterus and we've not gone beyond the fundus of the uterus, right? The, the most furthest extended of the Just wall. The yeah, because you can actually push right through the fundus and then we've left our target area. So reducing, having that conversation with the provider yeah. on reducing those, the potential of those. The symptoms. other thing that we can do is that you can request that lidocaine, whether in liquid or gel or foam form, be administered into the canal and make sure that, that it's left in the canal at least a good five to 10 minutes. That will help to reduce any um, sensor, negative sensory that may be associated with the administration or implementation. That does increase your risk of bacterial infection because obviously now we have more things involved in that environment. But so I personally do, in my practice, do use lidocaine. Actually, I cheat. I use a little bit of lidocaine with Marcaine. So like that, I have that extended period of protection. Marcaine will buy me at least six-ish hours of numbing to that area. So like that, their discomfort is minimized. And lidocaine and marcaine are numbing agents that will reduce that cramping and pain sensation, right? And that's, and that's every, I mean, a good patient, I always encourage patients to be good patients, they're self-advocates. And knowing that that is an available option, most clinics do have these options sitting on a counter somewhere and that it can be used by a competent healthcare provider. And if you ask for it and your healthcare provider gives you a deer at headlights look, well, that I think in those two seconds, that's where that communication piece goes back in and says, I think I should go find another place to get my IUD inserted, whether it be Pineapple Healthcare or, I, or Plant Parenthood or somewhere that may be more, a little bit more comfortable with that idea. I'm really glad you brought that up because I was going to talk about that as well. As popular as IUDs are becoming, especially among younger people, it's they're also unfortunately kind of getting a negative reputation around them, um, especially because maybe I'm just on social media too much, but I do see stories about people saying, you know, I went in, I was going to get an IUD. I was really excited. I came out feeling in pain, scared, like just not loving the experience. And I think that's, again, where communication comes in and you have to ask, I mean, your healthcare provider should also tell you, but it's good to ask, say, you know, what are the potential risks to this? What are the potential negative side effects? You know, what could, you know, come from this? And also, like you said as well, uh, it's kind of like when I go to the dentist, my dentist, whenever I get, you know, something done on my teeth, she says, if you feel even the slightest bit mm -hmm. of pressure or you feel the slightest bit of pain, tell me and we'll add more numbing because I don't want you to be uncomfortable in the slightest and you know yourself the best. I think you should apply that same practice here because if you feel even the slightest bit of discomfort or pain and you think, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm just being dramatic or maybe everyone feels this or, you know, I don't want to be a bother. You're never a bother. And I think you know yourself best and you should speak up and tell your Just like Eric said, right? You're your best advocate. Yeah. You should be your best advocate. Absolutely. So um, subsequently, as a result of feeling that um, less and I've been performing less and less IUDs over time, um, I feel like women have been steering away from it. And I've been performing more and more Nexplanons, which I to me is bizarre, right? Possibly because I return to the I don't have a uterus thought, but or a cervix. Or, there's a few things I don't have. But anyway, the reason why I don't I, the reason why I, I my logical mind doesn't understand is that the next one on, you have to open a hole in the body that wasn't naturally there or made that way. You have to make an actual cut into the body. You have to implement a, implement a foreign body into your body. And not only that, but, and here's something weird. While I found it that it's weird that you can actually feel a foreign sensation or body 
inside of you on a regular basis, women have reported to me, oh no, I like that. I, it's there's, there's a psychological reassurance. It's there. I know that it's there. I can feel that it's there. I know that it, you know it has to be working because it's in my body. Yeah, well, thinking about it, when we go back to the other methods that there's that uncertainty, if you removed it, if you didn't remove it, if it's on, perhaps there's that reassurance. William's that friend can... lost her Nuva ring. Yes. <laughs> Traumatic yes. experiences. <laughs> So definitely the, the implant that we have been talking about goes in the arm. And Eric has brought us a nice uh, model here where we can. Yes. Okay. So this yeah. is this is actually the full length of the next one on rod. It's and it goes rod. and it goes about eight centimeters from the elbow right in the center here of the arm. Usually it's in the non-dominant arm, hence why you see me doing it on my left arm, mm -hmm. right? And it actually is subdermal, so you do feel it there. Um, they are radio-opaque, so you can, if, if for whatever reason, at any point in time, it does get lost, you can actually get an x-ray and try to locate it, which is nice. I also use lidocaine and marcaine with this for the benefit so of my patients. So it is done in your office. It doesn't have to go into an operating room. No, no it's done in the office, in and out. I will say that if you go in and out in 15 minutes or less, then you went to the wrong person. Because you remember, when we're talking about the lidocaine marking to set in, we want a good five to 10 minutes to truly let it soak in, do its full benefit of the medication. Like William's dentist said, I don't want you to feel anything I agree with William's dentist. I don't want you to feel it. And in fact, I actually test to see by getting a needle and actually poking around. Do you feel this? Is this dull? Is this sharp? You know, are we good to administer? Because the bore of the needle to actually um, implement this is is pretty hefty. But yes, this is my this is my new favorite because it happens to be the ladies' favorite and what they feel most comfortable with, and is most effective. Or as we see on the top tier. I also brought another one that has it implemented in here. So you can actually see. Yeah, so this is an arm actually. And this is what the rod is, obviously the same one, right? <laughs> and then you can feel where the rod is itself. So you would have the experience of what a, a, a lady would have of looking for the rod and detecting it and making sure it is. After the rod gets put into someone's arm, the first thing that both the healthcare provider and the patient should be doing together is confirming placement. Now, we have heard that with correct implantation, there should be no major pain uh, during the process. Is there any other side effects that people should be aware of during the first 24 hours after implantation? So the imp good question. Yeah. So next one on doesn't go into working right away as far as birth control goes. So you do have to wait seven days before you can consider yourself protected with the, the hormones from the, the next one on. So you do have seven days that you kind of have this waiting period where you need to use a secondary method. If you can't find it at any point in time, you always need to return to using a secondary method. Secondary methods being like the ones we described before, like diaphragm, condoms, female condoms, or I forgot what we call them, external, external, con condoms. external internal condoms, yes. So yeah, that, that's definitely what we need for protection. Well, there is one side effect, and that is that you reach peak hormone saturation at one month. And some women do report having like headaches or having, um, especially if you're going to go in for surgery, you want to let your surgeon know, for example, because if you're going to be in bed for a prolonged period of time, blood clotting is an issue. Remember, we are using a hormone-based um, contraception. So blood clotting does become a concern at some point, especially, and I say in the beginning, because of that peak hormone. Interestingly enough, because of that peak hormone phase, my transgender population has actually loved this method of contraception, right? So people who were born female, assigned female at birth, who are transitioning to being male, they love the next one on because they do grow more facial hair, they have more masculine features at that one month mark mm -hmm. than they would have with just their testosterone treatment alone. So this is benefiting a broader audience than just cisgendered females. I wanted to like jump in real quick and just provide a bit of an explanation as to why I think some people are now preferring the implant over the IUD. I think just from, you know, I'm not like a healthcare professional, nor am I someone who experiences these types of contraceptions personally. So I do a lot of talking to people to ask, like, hey, why do you like this? Why do you not like this? And just from what I've heard and kind of gathered, I think it's something that feels like as 
quote unquote permanent. I know it's not permanent, but or long lasting as an IUD without kind of the same vulnerability that people feel when they go to get an IUD implanted. For some people, you know, even admitting that they want contraception or even, uh, you know, going to a healthcare provider to get contraception is kind of embarrassing and shameful depending on where they come from and what kind of attitudes they hold. So I think in a way it's a little less vulnerable to just get something implanted in your arm rather than, you know, as you said, the whole process of getting an IUD just for some people. I can see that there's a safety net in like a, a cold clinical environment where you go and get a procedure done versus somewhere in the bathing suit area. Well, we also see in the birth control section, there's two more methods that we can talk about, which is the permanent sterilization surgery, right? These are not reversible like the others we have been talking about. Some of them are long acting, some of them are short acting, but most of them, if not all, are reversible. At some point, if a person decides to actually go for a kid, they can actually stop using these methods or remove them from the body. So on, on that note, IUDs and implants, you can be you can get pregnant the moment they leave your body. Mm-hmm. That same moment, day, whatever you choose. Yeah, so let's talk about sterilization surgery, which is an option that people can discuss once they have set that family planning. So for me, I use the open rule uh, when it comes to choosing male versus female sterilization. When a, when a couple has decided that, you know, we don't want any more children, we're good, this is our family size, and everyone is on board, the open rule is basically whoever's open first is the one that goes first. So, for example, if she's about to give birth and this happens to be their last child, they both mutually agree this is the last child, she is going to be most exposed and already in a surgical suite or an environment where that can safely take place, she would be the one to do, uh, to do sterilization. However, and this even came from one of my uh, personal friends who happens to be a patient of mine, wife gave birth to their last child. It's been, they, it took him a moment or two to discover, like, do we want a third one or not? So now he's the one with the least amount of risk that should do sterilization. And that's what they went ahead and did. Um, so that's why I was like, where's the risk? Who's open already? Who's not open? Male sterilization, for example, is a simple outpatient procedure, whereas female sterilization is a surgical inpatient procedure. So that's why I use the open rule and I talk about the open rule with my patients. Do you have any any particular approach to people who have zero kids and would like to stay that way and are considering a permanent method like sterilization? Proper IUD would be the closest non-sterilization sterilization method, I would say. And that's where I generally, and it's also non-hormonal. So we know that in the future, if they were to have need any use of psychotropics or any other concerns or menopause were to happen and early, some people do experience earlier menopause, it is, uh, it's definitely a good option. And then the last method we have not discussed yet, which is not a daily use method or a, an implement that is emergency contraception, also known as plan B, right? What do we know about plan B? Plan B, I know, I believe you can take it within 72 hours correct thank goodness yes it's something that you can go to pharmacies also UCF has it at their health center and if you have as you described earlier a whoopsie and you're like by the way a whoopsie is a clinical term yes not doubting that at all if you have a whoopsie if you have unprotected sex or if one of your other birth control methods kind of fails or you feel kind of iffy about it you can go and get what's called plan b which you take after the fact so it's different in that sense i mean unless on a copper iud also as you explained earlier is a method that you can implement uh, afterwards as well but this is kind of the most commonly known i know a lot of people personally who have used it I believe out of pocket, it's somewhere around like 40 or $50. So keep that in mind if you're being a little risky, if you can afford that. And yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I, because I had, unfortunately had to have this conversation recently with a patient of mine. And that was that she had used plan B three times in one month. So at that point in time, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in encouraging her to use any plan B any further. I'm like, okay, well, maybe we need to discuss a long-term option. And that's where IUD and implants came into the picture. But yeah, you're absolutely right. IUD. And the best part about the IUD is that if you use it for our technical term whoopsies, right, it can be used five days, up to five days later, 99% effective, and it can be left in and continue to provide that contraception that they needed. 
So the plan B, is the plan B available to everyone? Can they just walk into a pharmacy or do they need a doctor's script? Nope, it's available to everyone. And in fact, any anyone over the age of 18 can, I believe, can purchase it from a pharmacy. They, it is behind the pharmacy counter. So it has to, you have to walk up to the pharmacy counter and request it. But the pharmacist or any of the technicians are not allowed to refuse it or deny it to anyone who's requesting it. It's in the island in a lockbox and my student is, I, 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 I know the lay of the land because of my students reporting on that assignment where they have to go and, and do the scavenger hunt. Yes, and uh, you take it, you take the lockbox. I'm, ass I'm assuming and my students also assume that it's because of, of cause. It's a single pill. You only take it once. It's not a regimen of several pills is a single pill that you will take uh, within the first 72 hours of having unprotected sex and uh, it should take care of a spike in uh, hormones that will make the environment unwelcoming for a potential pregnancy is uh, there are some concerns and we will talk about that in our episode on religious on religion and sex but there's some religious conceptions about these methods as being abortive do we know anything about that or do we have any comments so yeah so this is not an and, and i think that's the a good point to make this is not the abortion pill the abortion pill is a, a different animal altogether and how that works and how that is used and what name and how completely different plan b is unfavorable environment is different than removal thereof right those are two different items the mechanism of all of these methods that we have seen is just preventing that merger between the sperm and the egg. And even if that merger happens, there's no implantation. So right. at least as a technicality, there, there, ne there never is a pregnancy because a pregnancy right. is when sperm and egg meet, they implant in the body and they start growing as a, as a new uh, form of life. So definitely all of these methods that we have seen for family planning definitely prevent pregnancy from happening. So they should not be considered uh, an abortion method. And that's important because sometimes there's that confusion that because there's one pill after the fact that can be interpreted as the abortion pill. And, and as Eric said, these are two completely different animals. I see a lot of nodding here. It's like preaching to the choir here. No, I mean, I think the reason why there's you probably see a lot of nodding is because these are things that are, can easily be confused and misconstrued and understanding what is what is important. Plan B is different than abortion. And it's even though it's as as William mentioned is uh, on the more expensive side is still cheaper than any other procedure that will go with a pregnancy that will go forth right oh, either having yeah. the kid either putting the kid up for adoption either raising the kid yeah. when you compare it to those 40 and 50 dollars i will tell you as a gay man i pay for three college funds right so i know that their kids are very expensive whether you had them or not <laughs> so imagine uh, i just moved to town say for example I'm in my 20s and I come to UCF for the first time. We have discussed a little bit what resources are out there in the community. Is there anything that you will, any words of wisdom that you would like to give me as this new hypothetical student here in the community? I think we live in a uh, more modern world where we have the advantage of Google. And I think that Google will definitely be a solution for a lot of people. I, def I strongly encourage people to literally Google contraceptions near me and see what shows up on the map and what is near you. And then literally read through the reviews. Someone who has five star and 500 reviews is someone who has 2.5 stars and maybe around the corner from you. What is the difference? What, where, and why, how? Uh, and see for yourself what works for you, where you feel comfortable seeking treatment. Oftentimes when you use your communication tool and actually be a good patient advocate for yourself, and you talk with your healthcare provider, the look on an expression on their face, the first two, three seconds, which I call a nice little Freudian slip, will tell you everything you need to know if this is someone that you want taking care of you moving into the future and whether or not you need to find a new healthcare provider. In which case, we go back to that list and let's continue shopping for a new healthcare provider. And that's okay, there's a fit for everyone. I want to second that sentiment just because as I've, I've done a little bit of personal research as far as the options around this area goes. And there are some places that if you read the reviews, which is why this is important, you'll see that they're masquerading as one thing and kind of offering something different when you get there, which is 
kind of why it is important to read those reviews and understand what you're getting yourself into. There are organizations and places that, you know, will give you advice that's more on a religious basis versus, you know, places that will give you advice that's more on a medical basis, you know, and different organizations are coming at it from different perspectives. So I would say, like was said, do your research and just know that you could be just getting unwelcome advice if you go to the wrong place. Absolutely. I, I tell my patients that I perform the best bait and switch that there exists. I get them in the door thinking that they're coming just for SDI treatment or testing or prep. And I immediately go into full primary care and make sure that we cover all our bases. So we definitely come from a medical perspective. And I, I, I always jokingly say this is the best bait and switch you're going to find. <laughs> you get more than you came for, right? Yeah. Is there any final thoughts as we wrap up that our listeners should uh, take away from our conversation? Anything that we may have not covered that final thoughts that come to mind? Final thoughts, I mean, I would say like, this has been covered, but it, I mean, it bears repeating that you know yourself best and that you can be the best advocate for yourself more than anybody else. If something feels uncomfortable or if something feels wrong it, and there's some sort of intuition, I would trust that judgment and kind of say, okay, let's reroute and do something else because it is a very personal thing. You know, healthcare is a very personal thing and you don't want to end up, you know, doing something and feeling you know, bad about it afterwards just because you felt pressured or just because you felt like it was quote unquote the right thing to do or what other people are doing. So, you know, do the research, stand up for yourself. And yeah, it's, it might take a little bit of trial and error, especially as far as contraceptive goes. But if you find something that's best for you in the end, that's really the best outcome. And finding that provider sometimes is like dating, right? Sometimes it works magic as the, at the first encounter. Sometimes you got to go in the market right and and find that provider that actually clicks with you yeah that's how i get my patients they they tell me that you know this didn't work for me this didn't work for me and the first thing i encourage is and i thank them for is being open and honest and having that conversation with me about what is that did work for them or didn't work for them with their previous healthcare provider because ultimately my goal is to keep people as healthy and happy as long as humanly possible unfortunately If I don't know what's going on, it's very hard for me to find out unless there's a lab that's attached to it or something that's also attached to it. So that's what I try to do is try to foster that communication from day one. Now, how can our listeners stay in touch with your organizations? Okay, um, if you want to stay in touch with PPGA at UCF, you can follow our Instagram, which is at PPGA UCF. You can also email us at ppgen at UCF at gmail.com. If you want to be involved with Planned Parenthood in general, there is a location off of University, which is right next to Panera, I believe. And that's the East Orlando Health Center. If you Google it, you can find directions. You can also sometimes make appointments for virtual services and in-person services. They offer a wide variety of things such as pregnancy, you know, pregnancy testing and planning, STI testing, many different types of contraception, and a lot of also, whether in-person or online, a lot of educational materials that can be helpful. And we will leave a link to these uh, resources for our listeners so they can actually reach out. Eric, how can we stay in touch? How can our listeners stay in touch with you? Listeners can definitely come and get, get resources from Pineapple Healthcare at pineapplehealthcare.com. We are off the UCF campus locally here in Orlando off of, I believe it's John Young Parkway and 33rd Street. So we're very centralized. I believe, yeah, that's the best way. And also on Facebook, um, pineapplehealthcare.com and on Facebook. Absolutely. We will leave those links as well so people can follow our speakers today and they can follow up with any additional questions or comments or reach out for healthcare. So thank you both of you to for joining us today in the Sex Cafe podcast as we discuss and demystify a little bit of what's going on in family planning in the 21st century. Thank you.